0: The Instructor Podcast with Terry Cook, talking with leaders, innovators, experts, and in game changers about what drives them.
1: So, welcome to the Instructor Podcast Green Room Edition, where we're covering all the latest news and getting some uh, awesome opinions from a whole host of people, including today's very special guest, Gareth and How are we doing today, Gareth?
0: I'm absolutely fine. Thank you, much, Terry, and thank you very much indeed for for inviting me on. It's uh, very good of you.
1: No, I'm very much looking forward to this because. I was uh, on Facebook recently, and I stumbled across you, and I found that you had a very different opinion to me on a, a few different subjects, and I suddenly realised that a lot of the people I get on this show share the same opinion of me, and that's not necessarily through choice, it's just through the, the circle of people that I had, and I thought it would be great to have someone on who does have a different opinion or can often, uh, maybe in opposing view. On, on certain things. And, and when I saw your post, you're always really articulate and well thought in the way that you were doing that. i speaking just speaking to you before we record this, I can now see why. So so yeah, really appreciate you joining me. And I think the first thing I want to get on is the thing that's still rumbling on, the thing that's been rumbling on for a few weeks. Now, in some ways, I think it's right that it continues on. And in some ways, I think maybe, you know, we're making too much of a bit of a fuss about it, but we'll get into that. It's the whole standard checks fiasco. The fact that it's now being tied in with driving tests and all that kind of chisel. So anyone that listens to these show regularly will have a good idea of my opinion, but I'm so going to dive straight in and ask you for your opinion on that situation. Okay.
0: So I've been fairly vocal on Facebook, I think you can say. I've been and quite... Excuse me. Regularly vocal. Um, from my perspective, although the the trigger things just come in and it seems to be rumbling on, it's actually been rumbling on since about twenty fifteen. Um, because this is not a new thing, it was tried. It tried to happen when not sh- shortly after VOSA took on took over. Uh, sorry, merged with the uh, DSA, and they wanted to do a traffic light system. And they had a traffic light system that was. Uh, already in use on the commercial vehicle side of things where well, you had a red amber and green and uh, operators who were constantly getting trucks failing were red and those who didn't get who were constantly had you know good records were green and the reds got looked at more than the greens did and as a as a as a method it worked and it made sense for trucks because with a truck basically it's either roadworthy or it's not um so the, the attempt was made to do something similar with driving instructors. they wanted to do something very similar they also talked about um, publishing it as well and um, there was some opposition to it and there was actually a nas report done in 2015 where they went out to the, to the out and did a survey. there was a report put, uh, re- produced about around that and uh, there was a statement of principle op- um, offered and at the time, Uh, And in fact, I, I have a paragraph here that actually this is what was written in 2015. Is it okay to just read it out? Yeah. NAS would not support the use by DVSA of any data collected from driving tests being used as a method of monitoring ADI performance, but this would lead to the targeting of ADIs for remedial action. The statistics collected have too many variables, are subjective can only be directly attributable to a test candidate and or an examiner, and the level of inconsistency of the driving test regime across the country does not allow the figures to give an accurate, fair, or justifiable assessment of an individual ADI di's performance so that was stated in 2015 as part of a statement principle so move forward six years so i saw it come out and i went oh, that looks familiar <laughs> um and for me those principles still stand and i think um, one of the, the the issues as well that we get in, in the driver training industry more generally is it's kind of binary in nature um, and it's either one thing or another So as soon as I said that I didn't agree with the trigger system, straight away, I'm anti um, raising standards because the the trigger system is all about raising standards, apparently. Um, And nothing to do with uh, trying to reduce the level of, well, actually, that's not fair. It is to do with reducing the level of um, tests that take place as well. So in essence, I understand the premise of where the DVSA are coming from. They want to reduce the number of tests taking place, so they have less demand on their resources for the number of tests to take place. And they, I, I, I've, I've always called them bean counters, right? Primarily, they operate on beans, and they need to be able to count beans. And the means by which they count beans is through a badge being displayed on a test, so they can gather statistics from that badge being displayed. So, because, and then once they've got statistics, they then can base things they want to do because they have statistical information to base it on regardless of the strength or the uh, or the objectivity of those statistics so that's kind of what well, this is making some degree of sense um so the biggest problem i have with 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 it is not the fact they're trying to monitor instructors but the methods by which they are trying to monitor them and i have always said that candidates on test have to have a degree of responsibility for what they do now yes we have an influence on what they do because we train them but when they get into that test we have no control over what they actually do and there are so many variables in a test whether it's because of where it is the time of day it is the standard of the candidate the emotional state of the candidate how the how the examiner interacts with that candidate can make a difference on the day um so many variables and to say that's an objective measure of what I do to me is kind of it doesn't make sense to me it just it just doesn't make sense to me whereas I'm an advocate most people probably wouldn't like this of more standards checks not less because actually I think if you want to know what I do see me do it yeah see me do it
1: you've said so a lot of interesting things there. I definitely want to come back to a lot of them. <laughs> um, but I think that I want to touch almost on the, the last thing you said there um, in how it reflects on the person, uh, how the, the test results reflect on a person. And I'm speaking purely from my vantage point here, in that if I send, I don't know, let's say, 24 people on a test in a year, yep. I personally believe that, that sh- those results would be a flare reflection of me because of the the quantity, you know, sending 24 people in. For example, if if all, I'm going for extremes, if all 24 failed miserably, you yeah. know, with examiner intervention in each one, all that kind of yeah. stuff, to me, that's showing there's an issue there. Whereas if all 24 passed phenomenally, it's yeah. not saying there is no issue, but it's yeah. saying there's less likely to be an yeah. issue.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. But, of course, whenever we take these examples, we always use the extremes. Yeah. We always go for the extremes. And if you had 24 fails, of course, there's something not going right there. But actually, we generally, I don't, what well, the other thing that gets me, talk about data-driven, there's no real data which quantifies how, the premise that's happening here is that they are saying the test pass rate is so low because examiners, uh, sorry, instructors are not bringing people up to test who are ready to take the test. That, that's the basic premise to this. That's why the pass rate is so low. You know, Love Day Ryder said in a letter the other day about an S, a reply to SEN, to, a, um, to an MP, that the test the results would show that typically ADIs are not bringing people up who are a correct standard. Now, typically, really, I mean, that, that's a pretty bold statement to make to say typically that's the case, and actually no numbers to quantify it for an organisation which actually thrives off numbers. Where's the numbers to quantify that statement? So there's all over the years, we've been told for decades that ADIs are bringing people up for tests who are not ready. Anecdotally, there's loads of ADIs say there's ADIs who bring people up for tests who are not ready, yet it's never them. It's only people they have met in the test centre. And yet there's nothing to quantify how many is it? Because coming back to your original thing about when you look at the number of tests, 24 tests is a pittance. It's a tiny, tiny amount when you are looking at the number of tests conducted across the country. 24 is like nothing. Statistically, it's insignificant. Right. And when you've got that few tests, two candidates completely screw your averages. If you have a couple of people who have an absolute, you know, I, I made it with the test. Which can happen, there's your averages gone if they happen in the same 12 month rolling period. So whilst from an individual perspective, we think, oh, we're 24 tests, that was good. But actually, when you look at it, they're talking about averages across the country. It's absolutely tiny. So then you're talking about a really, really small statistical number. And I think as ADIs, we're very we're insular. We, we live in our own little bubble and we think our world's the major world, but actually it's a, it's so small from a statistical standpoint. And that's the other problem I have with the stats generally, because it takes a very small number to completely upset a very small number in terms of stats. And while we're fine, and, and so much of this is about, oh, it won't affect me because I know my numbers are fine. Well, I know it won't affect me because my numbers are fine. I'm not actually bothered at all about the effect it will have. And I'm also very conscious, and my wife tells me this all the time when I get worked up about it, mm-hmm. is that at the, the the consequence to it all is a standards check. But we have to have a standards check anyway. So you could say, well, why bother about it then? But then the premise under which they're doing this bit as triggers, to me, seems just bonkers in terms of what they're actually trying to do with them. And we're supposed to get a standards check. This is about doing less standards check. As I've said, I'd advocate more. And this is about resourcing, because they can't resource what they're supposed to do. And they're supposed to give us a standards check. It's, it's like, and, but... By dressing it up, and, and uh, this phrase I, I absolutely despise is exemplar instructors. It's what does that mean? Well, because you've got a good pass rate and, and, your, and your figures are 4.83 and not 6, you're an exemplar instructor. It means nothing of the sort. It, you know There's nothing that says you're an exemplar instructor because, okay, you've had a run of – the SEN side of things is where I get really quite – I get very almost emotional about it because – this premise that the test is standardised and if you bring people up who are prepared for a test, they'll pass. That's that's the, the DVSE's fundamental te- premise. But particularly for SEN, the test isn't the end product. It's, it's, it's almost a process. Getting them to a test at all is a major, major achievement. And you don't know whatever difficulty those people have. You cannot guarantee that something it will not get triggered by the fact of going into a test you can do mock tests you can do tests with other exact you can try as much but once they get into that real thing how they respond and, and how they respond to the person you you can't control it and this idea that oh, but as long as we get them ready they'll be finally just we i know i get people ready but does that mean they all pass no it doesn't and but i get although we can't quantify it, as I said, there's no numbers to it, that um, the, the instructors who are bringing people up who aren't ready, they've been talking about them for decades. But what have they done? And what have, uh, where are the numbers to quantify it? And if they really know who they are, and this is one of the things where, we might get on to taking the badge out shortly in terms of the badge not being in the car, but when they said if the badge was taken out strategically, um, they would use local knowledge to identify those instructors well, if they can use local knowledge to identify those instructors, why can't they just use local knowledge to identify the instructors who are bringing people up who aren't good enough?
1: It's, I think we agree on more here than I probably realised to begin with. Um, the, the, again, what you say makes a lot of sense, and I think I agree with it in, in a large part. I think that, and again, for, for a moment, I'm, I'm speaking on a, a personal level, not a, a broader mm-hmm. level. For me, it's all about personal responsibility. And someone, you you mentioned before about instructors having anecdotal evidence about uh, other instructors sending people not ready for test. I saw a a question posed on Facebook the other day that was one of the the best questions I've read on Facebook. Uh, I really commended it. And I've forgotten the exact word and annoyingly, but it was something along the lines of, would you let let all of your students who passed a test take your family out in their car driving? And it really made me stop and think, because when I stepped back, I thought, I think there's a few I wouldn't. I think there's a few I wouldn't want to drive my wife and Stepson about, even though they've passed the test, which then obviously made me rethink my standards. So when you're saying it's anecdotal evidence, uh, you know, 99.9% of ADIs, yes, of course. You're like, no, not me. Well, I'll hold my hands up. I think this year I probably have, you know, when I look back now, sent a few people to test who weren't quite ready the reason it being completely honest, probably the backlog not wanting to put the test back six months I'm not saying that's accessible I'm saying it's honest so it's there you know I, it is that from my personal evidence that it is but the I think where I do agree with you around a lot of what you've said the SEN stuff that's not my specialty but I agree with you there that they're not you know it's an it's a different factor it's not a driving factor with them now as much as i understand and sympathize with the people that will say well if they if they can't handle the pressure of a test could they handle the pressure of the mc2 on rush hour you know i can understand that perspective but it is still different yeah. uh, and i think it's something that dvsa does need to cover and then just touching back on one one last point you made there. before i put it back over to you you mentioned about the the data collected and, and the information used and, and local knowledge the, the where I do have an issue massively is, is one that I, spo- I think you touched on it is the triggers it is the the indicators uh, why are these numbers relevant what's significant about these numbers how have they you know I have they just stuck numbers on a dartboard and thrown them at them and I wholeheartedly agree with you what you said about local knowledge if they were to say these are the triggers that are going to highlight people, because, you know, whatever they met the numbers of, but including within this, we're going to take the opinions of examiners. I would have a lot more faith in that system because examiners, they're not stupid. They generally know who's a bit nervous and who isn't ready.
0: Yeah, and I think it's, it's not even just about that. It's about if they see it and ex- if they, if, if, and I, and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not denying it exists at all. But if, if it's true that they they know the instructors who are coming to that test centre are consistently bringing someone who's really, really not, shouldn't be there for a test, then tackle that. They know it so tackle it. Now there's big problems it can create from it because then there's the issue of is that is that examiner then is, are they victimizing a particular instructor? You know, it would I would have to I would think it would have to be done where all the examiners in that test center would have to agree on it and then go to the test center manager and then it'd be referred up because it couldn't just be on the basis of one examiner, because that would be wholly, you know. Um, open to abuse, and and also counter claims of what's going on. But you know, it's like if if they have this knowledge, then then use it. Because if 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 what it's about is getting a hold of instructors who are not up to standard, then make it about that. But taking your comment about the the dartboard analogy for the it's, it's I've called it a wish list from the word go. It's a wish list of things. Oh look, these will look good the industry i mean the classic one is the 55 pass rate right so they released a t- statistic that said adis who take who take people up for test have a 52 percent pass rate i've never seen that figure before considering the national average is about 45 46 so i would never seen that figure which then begs the question of okay so how bad then is the private runner pass rate Actually, when we've all been led to believe it, it was always supposed to be slightly better than us because they had more practice. But actually, if we're 52%, the national average is 46. I couldn't do the master rate, it was beyond my realms of possibility. But um, so what is the pass rate for, for, for private runners? A, a tangent to that at the moment is the fact that and again I spoke to an examiner, local examiner here, which I presume it's probably been mirrored across the country, is that the number of private runners has gone up massively massively and there are a load of them who and we all getting the calls you know i have my test in three weeks time i haven't got an instructor can you help me and we're all saying no because we're full um and so they've got a whole raft of people coming in who definitely aren't ready for test who they have to take out we're getting beaten over the head on the basis of some dubious figures and meanwhile there's a raft of people coming in which it does appear are actually not Definitely not ready, and they can do nothing about it because the legislation states if somebody has a car and books a test and has done a theory test, they can take it. There is absolutely nothing that's not coming up for it at all. Nothing whatsoever. And but they, and you see this is the other thing where there's a real there's a there's a definite problem there, but they can't tackle it. So instead they tackle us because that's what they can do it with. Um I was picking up on something you said with SEN as well. Um the, the, what you said about you know if they can't handle a test, can they handle a M sixty two? A couple of thoughts around that that's, that brings to mind. And this, I'm not an SEN specialist, but I have taught many people with proper, deep rooted, uh, clinical, clinically uh, sort of um, recognized anxiety problems and mental health issues. Um, I've, I've, I haven't done I haven't done any physical disabilities, but I've lots of people with either learning difficulties or mental health issues, and those people when they've passed the test can self-regulate they can choose where they drive um now i'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing but they can and a test i think for many people is is different to most other driving situations you're in i, I do i do fleet so of course the moment you do a um, you do a driver assessment with a qualified driver. The last time they saw a driving instructor was 30 years ago. And the minute you get in the car, boom, they're straight back to 30 years ago. That's the influence that, it, that having a driving test has. And, you know, and I think I, I just it's not just about being nervous on a test. It's much deeper rooted than that. And you can have people who can have a complete panic attack like that. And you get to the stage where you think they're not going to have a complete panic attack, and they have one. I've been at test before now. We got to the test centre, and test never went ahead. We had <laughs> to drive the person away again because they couldn't go through with it. They were perfectly able to drive, perfectly capable, but they got to that test and couldn't do it. Uh, and then I found out more reasoning underneath underpinning that, which is quite heartbreaking when I found out, to be quite honest. But, however, these are the things that can take place. Now, that person was lucky it happened before they went on the test. Yeah. They could have got on the test and realised, I can't do this. Yeah. Did that mean I was wrong for taking them up? It's a big debate to be had around it, but, but, you know, did I see that coming? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I know that's, that's an individual example, which are never great, because when you're looking at broader, but it, it's... It's more nuanced. I think it's more nuanced than we. Uh, this idea that, well, if everybody comes up who brought up is ready for a test, they'll pass. If that was the case, they'll pass. And yeah. When did the pass rate last change? Apart from when we found that ADIs do them higher than what we thought they did, but it's been like it for decades and it's just the nature of it. And unfortunately, it's binary. You know, it's another binary result. You know, like the pass or so you don't. Um, There's no room for gradings within that. It's not like an exam where you can slightly not do so well in an exam as you thought you were going to. It's one you just, whether you do or you don't. I think it's not
1: something I considered before about the the idea of self-regulating, because it's something that that I do. I I think about it in a much more smaller scale where, where i am in uh living in bradford there's a particular roundabout that if anyone listens to this knows bradford they'll know five lanes and roundabout which is notorious in that it's the worst laid roundabout in the world there's no signs and everyone knows what they want it's like the bradford version of spaghetti junction i generally avoid it because i'd hate it
0: mm-hmm.
1: now and again i go back and i do it just to keep my fresh and i'll always take my students there because i think you know always if you can do that you can do anywhere
0: mm-hmm. yeah
1: but i generally avoid it. That's, that's me self-regulating. And like you said, with, with SCN students, they might think, do you know what, I'm going to set off 20 minutes earlier to get to where I want to go to avoid this particular junction because I don't think I can handle that today. So I think that's a, a, a really good point in, in comparison to a test where they can't yes, self-regulate. They,
0: they, they can't regulate everything. They're totally controlled in what they're doing and where they have to go. Now, it has to be like that. You have to have a test and you have to have something, something that measures. And for me, the test... It kind of brings on to how I approach the test. And my view towards the test is it's incidental. It's incidental. It's not the end product. It's not what we're aiming to achieve. It's a safety check to make sure that person has got to a standard at that particular point in time that says, yeah, they're safe to go out on their own. It's just a check mechanism. It's nothing more important than that. And when it comes to my students... I, pres- I portray it in that way. I try to downplay it as much as possible. Now, they generally try to bring it back up again when they get close to it because they get nervous about it. But it's actually just recognising that it's it's just a mechanism to check something. And, you know, often all, a, a, call, a discussion I have with most of my students is, so when you go into the test, what are you going to do? And nearly all of them will say straight away, pass, right? And I say, no, what are you really going to do? When you get in a car, at any given point in time, no matter when you're going in it, what you're getting in to do. And they say, drive. I says, drive how? They'll say safely. I says, that's what you're going to do. That's all you have. You've shown it to me. You've shown it to your parents. Now just go and show it to somebody else. And that's how I portray the test rather than this like, oh, it's a driving test. And but, you know, but unfortunately, if ever, and I, if it felt worked for everyone, everybody passed, I'd be great. But it doesn't. And I recognise it doesn't because the other thing I do recognise about people is people make mistakes. And this is where it goes back to the idea of the traffic light system based on trucks. Trucks don't make mistakes. The people who maintain them do, but the trucks themselves don't. So if that bolt isn't torqued properly, it's not torqued properly. If that brake line is split, it's split. If that tire's bald, it's bald. Now, somebody was responsible for getting it to that stage, but ultimately the truck doesn't make the mistake Whereas in, with the people, people do—they're flawed. We're all flawed. None of us are. Not, there's not one of us can say we never make a mistake. And if you look at the types of mistakes that qualified drivers make out on the road, the day after they pass their test, they will do things that would would have failed them the day before. And they didn't do it deliberately most of the time. Most of the time, it's not deliberate. Um, you know, there's error lapse and violation, and few, few people never violate on driving tests. They don't deliberately do anything wrong. Whereas post-test, they might actually choose to violate. But pre-test and in-test, they just don't because it's controlled. So they either lapse or they make an error. Um, And if they've lapsed, that is entirely down to them lapsing. It wasn't because they didn't know they should do it. It wasn't because they didn't know what to do. It's just they didn't do what they should have done for whatever reason at that particular moment in time. And that, for me, again, is the big flaw in all of this, is that people make mistakes. And trying to tell people they're not going to, you know, even if you get a zero fault test, do we honestly believe the next day they're going to be zero fault all the way for the rest of the days? Of course, they're not. It's it's not how people work.
1: I mean, like you said, in individual examples are always great, but they're all we can go from from personal experience. I think, and and one that springs to mind there just almost anecdotal one is um, a couple. Of, well, in fact, it was last summer a last failed in uh, test center for me, and she failed because she came to lights and she stopped over the stop line you know, a couple of feet over it and, and the examiner failed her for that on uh, a satellite size. And um, when we drove back to us, we saw four cars that had done the same thing on the drive back. And it, that was the first time that really resonated for me that if people are doing this every day. How flawed is this test system? You know, it's a fault-based system, whereas people literally will do that Every single day, you'll see dozens and dozens of people do it on the road, but you do that once on your test and you fail. Now, I'm not condoning it clearly, oh, absolutely, but I think it's it's a different way to look at the test. And the last that failed for me last week, I think I spoke about this on a, a previous podcast. So, apologies if I'm boring anyone with this one. But the examiner come back and he's, he's just absolutely he failed her. She did 30 in her 20s zone. She missed a sign. Um, She was out for about 40 minutes, and he spent five minutes of her singing her praises. The only fault you've got is this speed time. I'm devastated to failure. I got failure. Yeah. And when he got out of that car, he just looked at me and he went, Sometimes I hate my job. Yeah. He says, that I want to pass her. And I think that's really sort of relevant to what you're saying. But I also just want to mention, because we mentioned the sort of the, the indicators and the and how we trigger them and the, the 55% pass rate. Now, I've been trying to dig into this a little bit and I cannot find it officially. But what I have read, uh, and I think it was by Kev Brock, so if I've got that wrong, I apologise, but what I have read is that apparently, and again, these aren't official what I've read, I couldn't find it officially, but the figures over lockdown, you know, uh, April last year to April this year were 52%, you know, when everyone was taking uh, the um, key workers out, when the roads were quiet and no one was on the roads and no one was on (laughs) tests, so you're going to get sky-high figures.
0: That would make absolute sense. And of course, it was only ADIs who could take them. Yep. So there you go. Let's let's quote that figure based on a totally unrealistic environment. That would make, you know, that makes absolute sense. I, I don't know if it's correct. I hadn't seen it, but that would make total sense because there's there's look at an unrealistic environment where there's no cars on the road, everything's really quiet. The only people out there doing lessons are driving instructors with um a specific type of um candidate as well. Key workers, you know that a, a, a kind of a demographic that's not as broad as what we'd normally be doing, and then you get going to get a pass rate which is probably higher, and then quote that, and then take that pass rate and say, right, we think it could be fifty five percent. No idea, and what the other thing that gets me with it is we've not been getting any information how we're supposed to get that extra three percent out of it. We didn't even know it was fifty two until they told us, and then we're supposed to get an extra three. Well, it's not an extra three percent when you actually do it because it's actually an incremental of higher than that. To actually get a product, if it's a productivity increase, it's actually higher than three percent anyway. Fifty-two at fifty-five is higher than three. And how? There's no how. There's no how. Well, how do we do that? Then that's nice. That's a nice figure. And we believe, as a professional, as a professional industry, you should be able to achieve this. How? If you give me an objective, please. Can you give me an idea and work with me on how I do? Because the other thing that that leads into, and I said you can probably see I can go on for hours at this, but um, <laughs> is. When you, uh, If you do a, a comparison to what perhaps what they do with schools in terms of how the Ofsted and everything looks at schools, but what they also look at with schools is not just exam results, but they look at the demographic and they look at the de- de- deprivation levels within an area. Now, we are operating in areas that are completely diverse in terms of you might have a, an inner city, de- really deprived area, or you might have a, a more affluent sort of suburban or rural area, which Candidates going to have more practice, more access to a car, more possibility of getting out with an instructor, more money to spend with an instructor versus another one. That's a massive variance. So, and you're saying, right, we're going to put across the board 55% in a test centre that's got a 38% pass rate that may well be in one of those areas as well. They're at a massive disadvantage. There's a massive disadvantage Because for them to get to 55% versus somebody who's at 54% because who they teach and where they teach may be more conducive to that, that's a massive, you know, and this is the other thing. If you're going to start looking at individual performance, then you have to make it individual. And they're looking at an average. They've looked at the whole country and gone, here we go. There's a nice average set of figures that we expect you to achieve with no actual thought to the individual circumstances for that business and that's what it is it's about businesses and that instru- and that where those instructors work. Now that's not to say that people who live or work in areas that are more deprived can't have a high pass rate. but they're definitely disadvantaged in terms of what they have to work with in terms of you know access to car, access to to, 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 fi- to finances, all those kind of things. So for me, again, this is where, again, it falls down because they're putting this blanket coverage that, and they're apportioning that to individual ADIs, which just doesn't seem fair or just in my book at all.
1: And on that note, we're going to take a step back for a moment and set the table for this show, but make sure you stay tuned because this conversation is taking a slightly different tangent to which I thought it would, and I'm very much enjoying it, and I'm sure there's more fun to come. So yeah, going forward, we'll be talking about private runners, we'll look at maybe is the the DVSA getting too test-focused, and then looking retrospectively at stuff rather than looking forward, and I'm sure a whole whole, host of things, but I... I'm indeed your epic host of the Instructor Podcast, Terry Cook, and you can catch me twice a week on the original Instructor Podcast on Sundays and on the Green Room every sort of midweek, Wednesday, Thursday time. And I am joined by Gareth Marchant. Gareth, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, where people can find you and anything else you would like to share?
0: Okay. Thanks, Terry. Um, yeah, so I have been an instructor for 22 years. Um, I don't know where the time went. Um, I'm based in Stirling, up in central Scotland, and I've been here the whole time I've been instructing. Over the years, I have been involved at a national level. I was the um, the secretary and also the... Um, um, Vice-Chairman of the Driving Instructor Driving Scottish Council, uh, which was one of the founder members of NASP and was also in the National Association Steering Group before NASP was formed. Um, so I have operated around the table with the DVSA. I've been in the meetings um, and, and I kind of have an insight into how how the machinations work. I stepped away a little bit after the VOSA and DVSA merger took place. Um, I also um, have done quite a bit in terms of um running sort of i used to be with its local association i was the secretary for that as well and and done quite a lot of stuff on goals for driver education um and um I, when coaching first started coming in in about 2010 i was kind of very much in uh, involved in in getting into some training for that and do and taking training for that and uh try to incorporate those. Uh, The factors from that, things like the Hermes report, merit one kind of stuff like that into my training as well
1: awesome uh, I really appreciate you coming on stage. so we'll, we'll get more into that further down but you are listening to the Instructor Podcast if you want to listen to the rest of the episode and a whole host of other bonus content including a very recent episode we did with Ray Seagrave on the standards check where we're diving into the different competencies around the standards check and even uh, the second half of this show you'll have to head over to patreon.com forward slash the instructor that's p-a-t-i-o-n dot com forward slash the instructor where you can sign up there find ways to support the show and get loads of extra bonus content but for now if you listen on the podcast we're going to let you disappear hopefully you go sign up and then join us back later on but enjoy the rest of your day
0: the instructor podcast with terry cook talking with leaders innovators experts and game changers about what drives them